In this episode, I'm joined by Anthony Metivier, author and memory expert whose life was unexpectedly transformed by the meditation practice of memorizing long-form Sanskrit texts. Anthony recounts his childhood of familial chaos and extreme religion, and how a psychotic break at university saw him wrestle with his mental health for years while self-medicating with antipsychotic drugs and alcohol. A lifelong meditator, Anthony shares how applying his world-class memory skills to the practice of memorizing and reciting long-form Sanskrit texts caused a series of profound spiritual experiences that revolutionized his reality. An internationally recognized memory educator, Anthony also reveals his daily routine for optimal mental performance and shares insights into the role of memory in identity formation and in spiritual awakening. So without further ado, Anthony, Mativier. Anthony Mativier, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been it's been great to correspond up till now. Well, I'm really delighted to be talking to you today, Anthony. Your work on memory, really remarkable and fascinating. And also your meditation journey, um, mm. just as, if not more, I think, fascinating and intriguing. Could you please recount your story? I understand you, you're raised in a very uh, strict Christian context. Mm. Um, but could you tell us a little bit about your early life and how it was you became interested in meditation? Well, it, it was chaos, really. Um, there was a lot of alcoholism and, you know, without a dwelling on it, a, a kind of extreme religiosity in terms of being exposed to a, a context where and, you know, part of this has to do with that I was a very imaginative kid. So a lot of the torture is an imagination meeting weekly lectures, if not twice a week on, you know, all the terrible things that will happen if I don't sign on the dotted line to what these various preachers were saying. But I had nightmares through a lot of this. And that's assuming I was asleep because I was often kept up at night with parties all night and all this sort of stuff. Um, and just really dramatic. You know, my dad's a great guy. He's, he's an amazing person, but he has the disease alcoholism and quite uh, an extraordinary French Canadian tinged version, <laughs> which, you know, French Canadians would probably uh, know that and uh, Canadians in general. I mean, it's just hockey night in Canada every night, whether it's hockey season or not. And um, that was rough. So, but I think that to be fair, the first experiences or notion of meditation I ever had was in church, specifically during these fasting periods they would have. Uh, so fasting was combined with meditation. Uh, but I really noticed it first in, I think it was grade 11, with a teacher named Mr. Esdale, who used to do some guided meditations. And that guy was sort of switched on. He, he, he seemed like he had he had the knowledge, so to speak, that destroys ignorance. And uh, that really touched me deeply there. But any meditation I did after that was intermittent until university. And I, I don't ha I have a, like a through line, but some of the, some of the head points that uh, came that I remember are really studying people like uh, Alan Watts, Eckhart Tolle, Wayne Dyer, and this was around the time when you could all of a sudden have this little device about this big that would have dozens of hours of audiobooks. So I was just gobbling all this stuff down. And 
that, that coincided with periods of some of the worst depression that I ever had. And so I just started practicing different things. And at one point I had this strange experience with this, just this like bright light sort of thing. And I'm, I'm total skeptic sort of dude. It's like science <laughs> or, or not. And this, this sort of was the most bizarre thing. So I started to look into that and, and see if there's any, you know, rational reason why such things would, would happen to you. Anyway, I, I just became a meditator, so to speak, and was really quite into it and practiced and practiced and practiced and enjoyed it. And the speed forward to 2017 and you know it helped me many many ways and a guy i was talking to named ben fischel in brisbane we were talking about atheism and militant atheism and you know this extreme scientific fanaticism that i was in at that time and he was asking me like well if you're so into meditation why don't you chant why don't you learn sanskrit and all this stuff and i'm just no way. I mean, why would I, why would I do a bunch of gobbledygook? I, I saw people doing that when I was a kid in church. They were not only, you know, just, and then they would like fall down and be slain in the spirit. That was the stuff of nightmares for me, you know, and it was like the last thing I wanted to do, but he knew the right buttons to press because he told me about this guy named Gary Weber. And he's like, well, that guy also had, you know, some pretty strict must be scientific rules. And he memorized a bunch of Sanskrit and then his thoughts turned off 100% and they never came back. And I was just like, BS. <laughs> I thought this was the craziest thing I ever heard in my life, but memory is, was my jam. And so I just thought if it's just, that's all it takes, I can memorize Sanskrit. No problem. So I remembered the name of the book and the guy and I went and ordered it and the rest is history, uh, at least so far. And uh, I haven't turned off the thoughts 100%, but I have had what they call um, persistent non-symbolic experience. I just had to change the name because it's all too symbolic, I think. So I think of it more of like sustaining and enduring, nurturing, you know, experience that is neo-symbolic so to speak it's a, like another way of thinking of symbolism and uh i think there's probably just people who no matter what they do they're not going to shut their thoughts off but imagine if you had some gym for your mind to play with that is much better material than blah 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 or thoughts about this that and the other thing and then you you know as you work that out it has a wonderful effect that completely retrains your mind and i have some hypothetical ideas about how it's training your brain too, like the actual physical brain to, to get into flow as uh, a task positive network kind of uh, transfer that may or may not be enduring, you know, for a very long time, but I haven't tested not doing these practices for long enough to see just how long it lasts without the practice. Well, that's a very interesting point. It seems then if, if you don't mind me asking some questions about that summary, mm. yeah. please. It seems the uh, particular style of Christianity that you were you grew up in was some form of uh, charismatic or evangelical charismatic uh, group. It, would that would that be fair to say? And it was the depictions of hell and the consequences of uh, you know sin and not being a Christian and so on uh, mm. laid out in explicit detail that uh, gave you nightmares and created such mental trauma for you at that young age. Well, at that young age, it was in a Methodist church, but I don't know just how strictly the pastor cohered to Methodism. And 
or Methodistism. I'm not even sure how you say it, but uh, I don't know to what extent he was a Methodist. I mean, it was it was a, a church in Canada, and how exactly the the elders of the church chose the person to be the pastor, I don't know. But there were people who came and went. So during my tenure, so to speak, at this church, there were different flavors of hell. Let's say, and you know, there's there was one guy in particular who had the longest period in my life, and he was particularly interested in young people let's say and he the 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 worst nightmares i had was was from his speeches uh and you know we could dwell on it but it was methodism but later i had evangelical uh, experiences and that was where it got really uh, extreme but the other point is is that people in the church itself in the congregation itself they were traveling people as well so you would get you know groups of people who were there for the long haul had always been there and probably still are and then you have people who would come from a evangelical church or they would come from something else and uh you know the, there'd be uh, flavors <laughs> so to speak and then our church actually and one of the most fascinating memories i have is they took us to uh, Fort Collins, Colorado. And then on the way back, they took us to the Mormon temple in Salt Lake city. And, you know, so it was just kind of like, they gave us an example. They're like, this is the real nasty stuff. You got to watch out for that. And it's just like, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> like, this is, this is just a, a variation on a theme here, but, um, like that's, that's how weird it was that we would go cult watching, uh, and they didn't have any idea that they themselves were operating like a cult, uh, if not more so. Hmm. And what do you mean when you said you had evangelical experiences later on where things got really intense? Well, there was the experience of being with people slain in the spirit, speaking in tongues, being interpreted by others, what they were saying. And then I really liked the pastor. Uh, he, he was a neat guy. He made root beer. He had he had an amazing house that you know you could go to and hang out. And um, there was one time in particular where he somehow got hold of me and was doing all the praying things. And I I felt something going on, and uh, it just coincided that I was I think I was in my first year of university at that time and was in psychology and had been studying certain things. So I didn't take it too seriously. I saw it as a hypnosis more than an actual conversion of anything out there but it still is it's kind of shocking and even when later post 27 2017 when i start having these these uh pnse experiences with persistent non-symbolic experience it i had uh this this kind of god virus experience um uh daryl ray i think his name is wrote the god virus and he makes an argument in that book that sometimes when when adults try to deconvert from a religion, they find it very, very hard because there's essentially a primacy effect that holds them in those ideas. And there's a, there's a sort of notion in there that if you had an, a, a, if you had lost religion and you then had a mystical experience later in life, then probably what's going to happen is that you're going to connect it with early religious indoctrination or training or experience. So when I started to have these bizarre experiences where my thoughts would disappear and I felt connected with the whole universe, uh, I just thought, my God, God is real. <laughs> like, <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> sort of thing. Um, and then, you know, put it all in context and, and 
you know, kind of inquire into all of that and neutralize it or dissolve it, uh, that sort of settled the, the, the question of it. But um, yeah, I'd, I, I never, except for at very young experiences, never really converted to, to the religion or even converted out of it because I still don't understand what Christianity is really all about, except for in a narratological sense and with some understanding of, of, of philosophy and whatnot. I've heard you say that prior to your experiences in 2017, you went through decades of mental suffering, actually. Uh, mm. And the phrase swallowing antidepressants and antipsychotics with alcohol every day for years. Yeah. That sounds... Not smart, not smart. <laughs> <laughs> It sounds pretty serious. So, uh, and at the same time, you're uh, training in memory and uh, acquiring a PhD and doing various other high level cognitive activities. So, can mm. you paint a picture um, of that time period? Just what was going on that uh, saw you swallowing antidepressants and antipsychotic medications with alcohol, whilst at the same time pursuing uh, feats of memory and academia? Well, there's lots of phases and, you know, who'd be here all day if I sort of built out the whole story. And then because memory is so suspect, you know, what is that story? It's there's always the risk of telling it a different way. Not 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 because you want to tell it a different way, but simply every time you tell it, you change it. So uh, I want to be sensitive to that. But if we really do a broad stroke in 1998, I was in what is technically my second year of university. I bounced around from universities and had all kinds of, uh, it's, it's very difficult to even count what year of university it was. But in any case, I'm in Toronto, far from home, like 3000 miles from British Columbia or kilometers, better said. And I was at York University. It wasn't my first choice. I, I wanted to be at U of T, but they said, oh, you're not good enough in your high school scores to be in uh, full-time. You could be part-time in U of T, but not full-time. So I took York because I wanted to be full-time. Uh, you know, uh, I'm sort of in for a penny, in for a pound kind of person. So I was there and one day I just started to write a poem and, you know, I drank a, like a young person would, uh, I think at university with all my friends, which meant closing bars and yada, yada. And you're young, you just kind of blow it off. And I worked very hard. I worked sometimes the night shift, etc. But I started to write a poem and I couldn't stop writing this poem. And I didn't sleep. And then I kept not sleeping. And then next thing you know, I'm just possessed with genius. And this is the most amazing words that have ever been written. And I know it. And I'm just I'm, I'm talking to T.S. Eliot in my head and T.S. Eliot is answering back and he's just like saying, you know, put this in there because that'll be really cool. And, and uh, then I'm emailing my professors these drafts of this and they're they're totally in the plot because they're the ones who introduced me to T.S. Eliot, not only T.S. Eliot, but like what individual talent really is, you know, and uh, then the next thing you know, I'm at a lecture and I'm hearing about Keats and I'm just crying like crazy. And outside the lecture, one of the teaching assistants comes and he catches up with me and he's got this poem that I've emailed him. And he says, you know, this is incredible stuff. This is really amazing, but it's also really sexual and it's really violent. And, you know, you're talking about having a public reading you know, at the end of the week when you finish this poem. And I know some people who would really love to hear about the philosophy in it. And he was talking about people at a place called the Clark Institute, or that's what it was called at the time, uh, at College in Spadina in Toronto, which is, here, let's call it spade a spade. It's a mental hospital. <laughs> and uh, so he convinces me that that would be the greatest place to go. 
I have a long adventure getting there because I meet a guy who wanted to borrow money to buy the Satanic Bible. I don't know if that happened or not. But anyway, I took him to the world's biggest bookstore and uh, bought him the Satanic Bible. I had a receipt that even had 666 in the serial, not the serial number, but you know, one of those registration numbers. <laughs> anyway, three months later, I'm still not let out of the mental hospital because I won't take lithium. There's no way. And I have all the perfect solution for how not only you're going to cure me, but you're going to cure everybody because like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, all that stuff, that's a production of capitalism. Now, I think still to this day that there's a lot of truth to that. <laughs> but anyway, finally, one day I break down, they give me the pills. I get out. They leave me on my own. They, they somehow think it's a good idea that I should go live with uh, another person that I met in that hospital. And, uh, you know, I'm back in the hospital not too much longer after that with even more problems. And uh, this goes on and on and on. So I don't know how much longer I should go before uh, take a break, but medicine never worked for me. So I started self-medicate with, with uh, alcohol. And the the conviction I had in science held me in still taking the pills, going to the doctors, trying the variations. I took certain uh, pills that drove me to the moon. You know, they, they, they were better than any mushrooms I took as a teenager. The, the, the way that they would interact with my system and cause, I wound up in New York city one time and I didn't leave for two years, you know, and I, I wound up just completely changing my life because of crazy fits that I would go on from, actually sticking with uh, the, their recommendations, but they didn't really know I was drinking at the same time. I don't know how much the alcohol and the, the different antipsychotics and stuff really um, caused these even more extreme manic sort of episodes. But I'll, I'd ask people, you know, do I seem normal? All this sort of stuff. And uh, they'd say, yeah, you just seem like yourself. <laughs> and was I or wasn't I? I don't know, but I wound up just doing the most bizarre stuff. And the, the alcohol really was great, uh, but I would drink to the point of blacking out. Uh, I've got a scar here. I don't know how visible it is, but that's from getting so drunk that I just, you know, fell down and I had to get it stitched up in, in Manhattan, which is a crazy place to have to wind up in an emergency room. But <laughs> um, just, just, just bizarre stuff. And I don't know how I, how I got through my PhD. All I know is that I've been hell-bent on surviving and I've been fighting for a very, very long time, a destructive urge that is, 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 is very, very strong. Um, it's like, I mean, I, I was a poet, practicing poet. It's, it's poet strong, the kind of stuff that wipes out lots of people, unfortunately. Uh, but somehow, I don't know why. I just have had a way of trying to figure out uh, how to survive. And I think that meditation and meditation that's aided by mnemonics to memorize long form Sanskrit as I do is uh, not that far removed from self-medication. It's just a cleaner, a cleaner practice. Um, and I'm so glad to be free of alcohol. I mean, it's just the most incredible feeling. I don't think I was ever an alcoholic, but I certainly um, soused myself in extreme ways. And, and I'm just a very lucky person that I didn't get into, into trouble because um, there were certainly things that would have had uh, <laughs> had certain uh, observers been around let's say with their with their handcuffs yeah that's remarkable and did this uh, uh, continue this cycle until the uh, memorizing of sanskrit influenced by that gary weber book or had you overcome that prior no i decided to give up alcohol completely 
in 2015 with Jonathan Levy on his podcast, the Superhuman or Becoming a Superhuman podcast. And so like a long story why we decided to give up alcohol, but we were actually quite ashamed that we, we were memory experts drinking wine on the podcast. And uh, we thought, yeah, look, if we're really going to do this, like alcohol is probably the least of our concerns for, um, for optimizing our brains. So we made a pact. And it, 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 as far as I know, I've been the one, the only one who slipped. And of course, stupidly, I slipped the day before that I went to a memory competition and showed up to the memory competition totally hungover. But it makes for a, a, an instructive story. And I still did pretty good. And that's the cruel sort of irony is that as, as blasted as I would get, memory techniques still worked. Um, you know, not as good as they can without uh, a filter, but, uh, you know, just to be a straight, honest person. I mean, you can, you can still remember stuff, uh, when you use mnemonics, even if, uh, you're, you're, you're inebriated. So, uh, that's kind of an interesting thing, or at least I could, I, I don't know. I wouldn't necessarily uh, take that and run with it at all. I would just keep, there's something very beautiful about being alcohol free. So, Another st story that you recounted that I found quite surprising, you um, took had a very rough acid trip in your teens, mm. and uh, your youth pastor gave you Carlos Castaneda to read, yeah. <laughs> and that combination, uh, you've reported, gave you severe anxiety until your mid-30s. Can you weave that thread into the, into the narrative somehow? How does, how does that fit? Yeah, so... This is that Methodist church, and I think I was 14. I, I don't know how it was that I lived such a life that was so unmonitored that we could get hold of that stuff and, and do these kinds of things. But yeah, I mean, I, without getting into the long story of exactly what happened on that trip and how crazy it was, the effects were that I couldn't breathe very well. Like I would have these my chest would just seize up and it would sort of like in my mind repeat a scene from the from that from the trip where i would uh you know have this sort of fire coming in and the ice at the same time and i i wonder what it was that i did on that trip because i added extra drugs along the way that day and it, it sounds a lot like things like what people say ayahuasca is and i have this memory in the trip itself that somebody said this is this is shrine so they, there may have been some some strange like next level uh, sage in there or yage or whatever i don't have no idea but um yeah, this anxiety lasted for a very, very long time. Uh, actually, recently, I had another bout of anxiety. And I was just like, how did this come back after all this time? Uh, it turns out that my um, potassium had crashed, but uh, we got that sorted out. Uh, but for whatever reason, I, I, I just had this experience in life. And I used to skip school because I couldn't stay in school. I had to be outside and I had to try to breathe. And then I would I would wander past the church and one day the youth pastor there his name is dan he he found me and he's he just sort of figured out what had happened and or he had heard from my dad or somebody uh what had happened and he gave he gave me these books and one was a christian book about dealing with demon possession and another one was uh don juan a yucky way of knowledge and i mean that book was very very helpful uh the don juan book but it it it's also an anxiety inducing book. If you think about it, like if you try to relive the experiences that are, that are recounted there, but it puts it in context and it's a, it was a great gift because it, I think is one of the, the early things that really got me into philosophy 
uh, as such, because it is philosophical in nature. It's about, you know, what is a conscious state and what is the alternative to a conscious state or what are the possible things that a conscious state could be and where is the nightmare? You know, what, 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 what exactly is this, 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 this thing that can be so good and bad? And, you know, how do you, how do you kind of rotate or, or resolve uh, certain aspects of it and just embrace it, let it be. Uh, the whole character of Don Juan is, is really, you know, quite an iconic uh, avatar for for Morpheus in the Matrix, or or these kinds of dudes that uh, uh, that appear in one's life, and so that was that was a that was a nice introduction to in inquiry, I guess what you would call inquiry. That is just as inquiring as Socrates or or Ramana Maharshi. It's uh, just let's question what what's going on here, and uh, yeah, that helped. But it did get rid of the anxiety. It, it ultimately self-medication got rid of it and then meditation i think gradually sort of weaned it out and resolved it uh which also i learned self-hypnosis I, I became a certified hypnotist at, at one point through the national guild of hypnotherapists or however that's called in toronto i did that as part of my dissertation research and those kinds of things also helped resolve it and there was a weird experience in that course where the teacher uh, of the course um she she said I, I perceive that there's a black snake around your heart. And I was like, you, you, you have no idea, <laughs> but it was kind of a, it was kind of a weird thing that she, that she, she noticed that. And we did some work around that in the class and, and, and that was very useful. Not sure I buy into the, the past life sort of story that got cooked up out of there, but uh, it made for an interesting little mini book that I wrote at one time. So if I had a past life, um, hi, <laughs> hi, Jim. <laughs> what was the, what was the past life story? Oh, it was, uh, so we're, we're, we're in a hypnotic state now, uh, regressing me through my past. And all of a sudden I'm in a, in a jet. I don't know what kind of jet it was, but we, we figured it out that it must've been, you know, either Vietnam or world war II or something like this. And, uh, it's on fire and it's crashing into a jungle. And I just had all of a sudden this whole history of this guy named Jim. I called him automatic Jim because I was writing, but she gave me this exercise to do automatic writing. So I was writing and I, I mean, it's in a book called Lex Talionis Schadenfreude. Uh, the last section of the book is called automatic Jim. And it's all my writings from exploring this, this previous life that <laughs> I supposedly had, but it was very useful to, to think about it. And I'll tell you, like, even though I'm sure it's just a hypnosis induced daydream it was so intense and so real and it connects to like a weird thing i've had around heights my whole life as long as i can remember even to this day this strange very nasty um um you know high places anxiety that uh i've learned to cope with but it was just kind of weird that that was the image in my brain cooked up is like crashing in a plane that's been hit by a missile or something and then i'm just being on fire anyway it was called automatic gym and uh, i haven't read it for years but it's in it, it's in the book called lex taliona schadenfreude it sounds like your youth pastor in giving you those books a book about demon possession from a christian point of view and carlos castaneda which includes lots of things about entities it seems he was at least implying uh mm. that part of what you were going through was due to some influence I suppose as they'd say in, in Tibetan, uh, dern provocations, right? Some sort of thing like this. Would you say that was what he was implying? And uh, if so, what what do you make of that? 
I don't know. I don't, I don't remember it enough, actually, what conversations that we had. I, I have uh, recently reconnected with him, though, uh, coincidentally enough, but we haven't gotten together to chat. And I don't know if he would be open to it because so many things seem to have changed. I mean, I think he at some point became a politician or, or something, and he's not, I don't know what, what's going on with him, but we did reconnect uh, just really a couple of months ago. Um, but it'd be an interesting thing to ask him. I would, I would just be interested where he is, so to speak, spiritually uh, after all these years. Uh, but I think, I think really the reason why he gave it to me was so I could work it out for myself, not necessarily to, uh, get me thinking along those lines. And I don't know my, my distinct memory of him. It was that he was in the church because he was born in the church and he was a very, very smart guy. And the gig was up to a certain extent and I think he just had a sense that I was, I was capable of reasoning through it. And those were the things that he thought would help me um, more than some of the other things that, you know, like being exercised, which also happened to me at one point in my long church history, uh, more Southern style, I guess, exorcism, not Catholic style, <laughs> but you know, the, it was a great gift one way or the other, but I don't, I, I wouldn't want to, to speculate too much about what his intentions were but my my perception was is that he was giving me something that he, it was just in his repertoire that he thought i would be able to process um and i think the other one was called breaking the bondage and i thought it was at the time totally ridiculous it just reminded me of these guys who preach against heavy metal which was my favorite music and you know I, i'd seen the judas priest trial on tv when i was a kid because you know people had, had damaged themselves and i had rob halford's explanation of you know if you're gonna blame song lyrics for that then you've got to blame every word and every advertisement for it you know so uh i'm not i'm not a big believer in in, in a spiritual world existing and i don't think that if you look at the the, the actual material in most spiritual traditions, I don't think they are too. I think that a lot of that stuff is built through commentary by people who have an agenda and that agenda has to do with the structuring and maintaining of hierarchies that keep them in control. So, and, and it's basically stuff written for, for those purposes. At least that's how it seems to me. And I'm happy to be wrong about that. But uh, if you read the hardcore texts in almost any religion or spiritual tradition, they are uber atheist, as I like to think of them. Uh, th if there's no separation, where is there room for such things? Uh, it can't, can't be. <laughs> I mean, it just doesn't make sense. The, the, the math of those philosophies just completely make it impossible for, for such things to be. Fast forwarding to 2017, and you'd actually, by that point, been a longtime uh, meditator and memory expert, as, as you pointed out. But something about the method presented by your friend, or by Gary Weber via your friend Ben, uh, had a rather different effect. And on, at, at face value, your initial reaction, I think, uh, quite reasonable. Memorizing large amounts of Sanskrit as a meditation technique, as a sort of almost a therapy in a way. Mm. Um, can you explain in some more detail, perhaps a little bit about who Gary Weber is and what is this method that he's proposing in that book? Well, Gary Weber is 
I, I don't know that much about him as a, as a person, and he goes out of his way to sort of limit uh, biography, which is a is an interesting strategy, I think, and a great one. Um, and it reminds me of of some of the great practitioners of psychoanalysis who went out of their way to keep their lives out of the analysis. Um, so I think that's important. But he was an academic, as far as I understand, and he also had some sort of scientific background and was in command of a lot of budget. Uh, so he had a, a pretty prominent position where you would think ego would come in handy. Um, and when he's practicing yogic practices and so forth, he himself is, is into all of this because he's got a mind that is just causing so much suffering incredible amounts of suffering and he's got to he's got to he's got to stop it like you know his head's on fire to be enlightened kind of thing and so yeah it, it, it sort of plays out in different ways if you pick around his interviews and the books and then you read between the lines of the books and so forth uh, but from what I understand, he himself only started to memorize Sanskrit later as a way that he thought might help others. Uh, but I think a lot of his development was through a kind of, uh, what do you call it, shikantasa, I think, and, uh, and yoga, like movement sort of based things. And somehow, as he says, he did, a, he did one particular asana, and then it's like his thoughts went out, like blowing out a candle, and they never came back. But if you read his books, he says, you know, if I'm tired or if I get hungry or whatever, then, you know, sometimes it'll come bubbling back these these kinds of blah, 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 which would make sense, uh, I, I would think. Um, when, when one isn't well nourished, <laughs> I mean, you're going to you're not going to you're going to be grouchy, uh, probably. So I, I think he's like really down to earth, but a lot of people have exploded it into something other than what he's saying. And uh, so I think a lot of it has to do with the, the idea of happiness beyond thought or this idea of just not being bothered by thoughts or not having any thoughts at all is partly be coming from some of this from the, some some of the texts so at the at the what what he selects as the capping verses for the end of a extract from the ripu gita it says there that you know self-conscious or um, self-inquiry or the study of self-conscious is the ultimate science and its goal is the eradication of thoughts Right, that that is the ultimate sort of bliss or pleasure is is the destruction of, of thinking, and so you know you can interpret that lots of different ways. So is it the destruction of thinking on demand? Is it the total destruction of thinking so that you never think again, or is it you know something in between that? Uh, I don't know, and I ultimately don't necessarily know uh, what it is for him. I mean, in my own TEDx, I sort of. Uh, paraphrase and soft quote or uh, allude to one of his own lines, which is, you know, I got myself onto the highway and I showed up here and, you know, thoughts are obviously involved because you got to read exit signs, right? But in terms of the thoughts that cause me suffering, they're just gone. Um, then again, I'm not quite there that they're just gone. They never come back, but I have these tools and they're the tools that he gave. So what is the program? As far as I understand, the program is, is like it says in the Atma Bodha. It's like you can meditate until you're blue in the face. That's not necessarily going to, you know, get you this outcome. It's going to be knowledge of the self. And then whatever this self is, is it a, is it a quote unquote correct definition? And 
So the self is already like, what the heck can this mean? Big S, <laughs> you know, and you got to sort of think about it. You got to inquire into what that is. And there's different ways to answer that question. Uh, like, are we talking about consciousness? Or if we talk about consciousness, are we making the, the great error that um, Shenzhen Young points out on your, uh, your own program that, you know, you overrate consciousness? Because I don't think self is necessarily about consciousness as such. It's, uh, as far as I understand it, in the, in the Advaita Vedanta tradition or the non-dualist tradition that Weber is pointing to or referring to a lot, it's just simply this, right? You can call it this screen or you can call it whatever, but it's, it's, it's this, you know? Uh, I mean, I don't know what else to call it other than you are somehow, there's a production of reality in front of you. And if you, if you can really resolve yourself to the fact that that is all that there is, you can't, you can't add anything to it. You can't take anything away. As it says in Bhagavad Gita, you can't cut it. You can't burn it. You can't dry it. You can't get it wet. You know, it's just, th this is it. And you are that thing, right? And uh, if you can figure out the way that that thing has always been what you are and the old zen sort of thing about your face before you were born or the face before your parents were born and all that sort of stuff i mean it's just a it's just a variation on koans that i feel is just a little bit more direct to to be able to do it provided you memorize it and perhaps provided that you memorize it in a way and practice it in a way that gives you the procedural memory that keeps reminding you for you that it's like this is it this is it this is it and uh there even if there is something else outside of it, it's going to be in this because where else would it be? Um, so I think that's what his program is more or less. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think of him often <laughs> and, and I'm very grateful uh, to Ben and to, and to him for doing this stuff, but he would be the first one to discount crediting it to him because it's just like a, another meat tube that has uh, been so fortunate to process this ancient stuff that's that's in the oldest texts uh, and be able to actually not only have access to it but actually understand it and then transfer it into something where your brain does it for you and so that's my hypothesis is that this is ultimately the success and you see it in like if Eckhart Tolle has it if Wayne Dyer had it if Alan Watts had it if Tony Robbins has it you just go down the list the thing that I see common to all those people is that they quote from memory an awful lot and they repeat themselves an awful lot, which is essentially quoting themselves from memory a lot. And so, you know, no wonder you would get this conditioning that you would then start to not merely believe the thing that you're talking about, but you become the thing that you're talking about because it's just, it's just now uh, procedural. And so I think procedural memory is probably where it's at. Uh, for many, many people, uh, if they haven't already got it, but you already do have it. You just haven't realized it yet because that's, that's the hidden secret that we, we all come to know, or hopefully we all come to know at some point is that you can't possibly ever find it because you've had it all along. This, uh, this miracle of being able to, to, to have this screen period, because, you know, most people don't, and that's why they're not people. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just that simple. What do you mean by that last statement? That's why they're not people. Well, you know, being right. Uh, if if I was just reading the other day, the uh, the Sophist by uh, Plato, and in the Sophist, there's this long section about 
being versus not being and like what is a real teacher as opposed to just the the fake teacher and uh part of it comes down to do they really understand the difference between being and not being and to really understand the difference between being and not being you have to understand that not being is not the opposite of, of being right it's difference it's the difference so the thing that makes us unique and special and this appearance of the world inside of us is that it's happening to us and it can only happen to us because we exist but there are billions of other possible people that could exist that don't either because they were never born or they um, died early or they are already dead and they don't get to live anymore or what have you right so this thing that's happening for all its misery and all its woe and all the terrible things that can that can happen it still gets to be the miracle because you know cows apparently aren't you just ecstatic about experience the way some humans get to be they're just cows and <laughs> we have this bizarre thing where we have developed a language where we can sit there and talk about you know what's happening to consciousness over here and you know there's consciousness over there and look what's happening and we get to like oneness is so obviously the case you know we wouldn't be having this conversation if oneness wasn't real it's it's precisely because consciousness is so unified that we can have this conversation right and if you know german then we could do it in german as well but uh consciousness is so unified that you could have translators translate for you so you could speak to people who speak languages you're never going to learn that's how unified consciousness is and this invention of language that we've come up with but if you don't live then you you, you don't get that or at least apparently so what do i know maybe maybe you do <laughs> maybe the, maybe there's uh maybe there's something out there about that but logic and common sense would probably suggest not so yeah that's what i meant and this method of memorizing Sanskrit, it's a very interesting way you presented it. If we say, well, how does that method get you to there? Uh, mm -hmm. one, uh, one method of analyzing it is, well, there's, it's a sort of concentration exercise, almost something that one might see from the Yoga Sutras, so concentrating to such a high degree that one experiences that kind of su subject object uh, merging, for example, and maybe that's th the way the insight comes, comes through, but that doesn't seem to be what you're saying. There's also ideas of Nadi yoga, the idea that, well, using this sacred language of Sanskrit as this idea is propagated, the tongue is touching various different uh, channels uh, on the roof of the mouth and activating subtle anatomy, which through some means or another brings you into this sort of, uh, this sort of experience. Or as you're saying, uh, and have said, patterns neutralize patterns. And this mm -hmm. idea that you're almost moving a philosophy or a way of seeing the world or a way of, of internally narrating the structure of perception and belief uh, from short-term memory to procedural memory so that it becomes intrinsic to the way you experience yourself and perception and so on. So is that how you put it? And do any of those other uh, means of analysis uh, resonate with you? How, how would you describe how it is that the method of memorizing Sanskrit gets you to the, the conclusions that you're expressing now? Well, I don't think I ever would have understood what Advaita Vedanta or Advaita Vedanta is saying, or really even been able to connect it to Zen or to Chan, or, you know, I wouldn't have, I don't think I would have gotten it because I never got Zen before. It was just kind of like, what? You know, <laughs> it just didn't make sense. Uh, so I think that there's an, an aspect to it, at least for a person like me, where I needed 
to actually have it in random access memory to the extent that I could put the pieces together to go, aha, that's what this is saying. Not, well, referring to 35 books and notes and, you know, trying to piece it together. And I've seen this because I, I, because of the, the success, so to speak, of what I've done with this so far, I've had lots of people who practice Buddhism come to me and, and talk to me and, and they're, they're asking me about this, that and the other thing. And I sort of just say, no, but this is, this is it. I mean, this, this has to be it total and you know you hold on to it by training your procedural memory and if you've lost it well then train your procedural memory so that you hold on to it and then they'll go okay i'll come and think about that they, you know sort of later and then they'll come back with the same questions they had the last time and so i mean i think that part of it is can you get a big enough map of what all these people are saying about the nature of reality insofar as reality can perceive, be perceived by a three pound brain and um which is a lot. Uh, it's like a zettabyte that the brain can deal with, apparently. Uh, so, you know, can you can you create a large enough map so that you can run the equations? And that's the way that I see the memorized material is that it's equations, it's math. So, this idea of being and not being, and you know, not being not being the opposite of being, right? It's just a different variation on that. Like that already is just kind of what, you know, like you got to, you got to have the, the field that can process that sort of stuff. So that's part of it. So having memorized my first 32 verses really was transformative because not only did I know what the texts were saying, but I was able to percolate them without reference to anything outside myself. I was able to, in the moment, take verse five and compare it to verse 32 or whatever, uh, just reflect on it and reflect on it, not as a whole, because you still have the linear nature of time, but still as a whole. And then I went and memorized another piece, Upadesa Shrem. Then I memorized uh, Atmashatakam. And then I memorized quite a bit now of uh, the Song Celestial, which is a compression out of uh, Bhagavad Gita. And I've memorized parts of Atmaboda and I've memorized little bits here and there from Ashtavakra Gita and so forth. And the more you memorize, the more you kind of have this compare, contrast, match sort of stuff. And then the next thing I knew, I was like, wait a second, I missed this in Nietzsche. So I went and reread Nietzsche. And because um, something in my mind was like, this is something like Nietzsche was talking about. I go read Nietzsche, lo and behold, you know, on page 15 or 30 or whatever it was of Beyond Good and Evil, he's like making jokes about Erwaita Vedanta never saw it before you know he's making jokes about all kinds of stuff and he's like you want to wake up come on boy let's rock and roll like, let's go to the coldest place because <laughs> and he's just laughing making jokes about Dwight of Adanta. never saw it before didn't even know what that meant didn't even know to look it up the last time that I, or the first time that I read Beyond Good and Evil so it's just extraordinary and now all of a sudden Nietzsche is a whole different proposition and then you think Nietzsche oh right Schopenhauer Schopenhauer read the Upanishads and then you go read some Schopenhauer you read the Upanishads and so it's just like it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and then the next you know you're, you're reading two days ago like i was the sophist because it's been a long time since i read my plato and i was just oh, i think i'll reread plato and it's like what it's all always already been there you know and uh, you just didn't see it that way and the way that i saw you know plato back in the day when i was studying him in university was in political science and that's just as fine a way to learn plato as anything but it wasn't this way and so you just miss all that stuff you can't see it it's not in your head it's not in your it's not in your random access memory. So that's, I think, really the core of how this works. This is a philosophy. The philosophy has implications for how that one navigates the world, because that's what philosophy is. It's, it's love of knowledge that has a navigational component 
that 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 sort of helps you decide in a moment to moment basis and all the more so when you have trained your procedural memory to bring back those tools so if one of those tools is a real thought is as rare as a rabbit with horns well, then when you have this thought come up that is totally annoying and causing you suffering, and the first thing you remember is this bizarre line from a Sanskrit uh, poem or whatever you want to call it, uh, <laughs> you just laugh, oh, there's that stupid thought again. And before it even has a chance to really cut deep, it's gone. And you just do it again and again and again. Uh, and I think you were talking about this with, with Shinzen at some point, that you get this feedback loop, right? And um there's a there's a kind of technique I've heard Jeffrey Martin talk about, uh, which is kind of like the opposite of neti neti. So instead of, you know, not this, not this, you say deepen, deepen, right? And so when you have that thing, you create your own feedback loop and you really double down on it. In my case, I, I have done that deepen, deepen exercise. But another way to do it is just to recite some more of the same Sanskrit that you already memorized and delight in it, right? Or heck, you could maybe it's maybe it's a Lou Reed song I don't know I mean it can be it can be all kinds of things because now you see wait a second Lou Reed had as much consciousness as I did right that dude was enlightened for sure I mean consciousness is consciousness you're either alive or you're, you're not and so you know you can just reflect on his stuff you can reflect on anything you can go to do Judas Priest songs whatever like they're all switched on when you when you start to to really connect it so yeah I think that there is a particular knowledge that may be better than some other knowledges. And if you have enough processing space, then, then you can really start to, to understand it and love it and nurture it and have it nurture you. Can you talk about the occasion after a tough day of work, you went for a walk and for the first time, uh, you using this method, all your thoughts disappeared. Right. Right. Yeah. That was weird. <laughs> um, yeah, it was a it was a day like many uh, where I do internet stuff in my in my business, and I was wrangling with with YouTube or sorry Google ads that you know run through YouTube and all this sort of stuff, and they change all their policies all the time. And so one thing that used to work didn't work all of a sudden, and then you figure it out, and it's just like ah, I'm gonna throw the laptop on the ground, kick it off the balcony, all this sort of stuff. It's like no, no, no. Like start to start the whole routine. And I go out for a walk and I'm still, I'm like defragging the computer. I mean, Weber uses in Evolving Beyond Thought the idea of like, you know, defragging a computer or whatnot, uh, reprogramming this, uh, updating your software. That's how he calls it. Um, so, and I have that sort of feeling as I'm walking, I'm starting to feel better. I'm just chanting away. And uh, I get to the bench and I don't know how long I'm sitting on the bench, but I don't think it was very long. And then all of a sudden, just this is like gone literally gone and what's there instead and this is where i came up with this idea like non-symbolic doesn't make sense for me it was like neo-symbolic because the world was still there i still saw the trees and all this sort of stuff but it was just this total silence and in retrospect i sort of had this feeling of like imagine if the world really was a a, a simulation and i had seen the grid that is behind the simulation and it's just like humming power that has all sort of coagulated into this moment and revealed itself and uh it just shook me to the core and it, it's it's to this day it's just sort of like reverberating and then i have these other kind of moments that are that are much like that uh and they happen when i'm sleeping like i i i, I have like i wake up and it's just like this 
this throbbing like that and I uh, get up and go and sit and meditate. And it's the, the most extraordinary thing. And then, you know, sometimes I wonder, I was just like, am I still on that acid trip? <laughs> you know, because it's too good to be true uh, that, that one would be so lucky to have experiences like this, but yeah, I, I highly recommend doing whatever it takes to get into those, those states and take it with a grain of salt too, because uh, you know, there's, there, there are forces of self-deception and, and, and fantastic ideas and so forth. But in, insofar as it being what it is, Shenzhen was, uh, was so instructive. I don't remember exactly where it was. I don't think it was in any of his books. I think it was in one of his YouTube videos. He said, you ever have experiences like that? That's when the inquiry really needs to kick in. And that was great that I had that under my belt. I didn't quite know what the heck he was talking about. But when that happened, I knew what he was talking about. And uh, I've sort of applied some form of inquiry to every instant ever since. And um, I don't get to choose them, unfortunately. I'd have it all the time if I could, because it's it's quite nice. But uh, when it comes, it's either like a deep and deepen kind of thing, or I just inquire into it, like typical tools of inquiry. Who is this happening to? Or um, how could how could such a thing even be? Or you know, whatever. Just riff on questions about it, and uh, it's it's very it's it's great. Uh, I wish everybody could have it. So. Fascinating. And what has the consequence, what have the consequences been in your day-to-day -day experience uh, since that event? Well, the, the big thing that comes to mind, except for a few little scares here and there, like when my potassium crashed, but even then, um, just like a, a loss of the fear of death. Um, just really, I used to, I used to worry about dying all the time. Uh, and that's just basically gone. Uh, I think of sometimes, I think his name's James Doty, who wrote into the magic shop. Uh, like he talks about the possible psychopathic ramifications of meditation where people like on wall street will meditate so they can make really cruel and brutal uh, decisions based on people's, you know, pensions uh, or what they hope to be pensions. Um, and so I worry about that a little bit uh, sometimes that I would be so unafraid of death or whatever, that I might do something to totally crazy, like uh, whatever, but that's kind of what it is to be in flow. Right. Cause the difference between this state task positive just totally switched on totally involved in the moment and stuff and hanging on the side of a mountain because you're a climber who takes that risk and you're it's life or death you're switched on I, d I don't think that those things are as different as as we make them i think that they are that same thing uh, at some level and how you get there you don't necessarily have to climb that but you know like I just, I just have, sometimes have these little weird ideas, like, like would that be just crazy jump in the ocean right now and, or whatever, right? And, uh, and not come back. So you got to kind of, we're, and J Jeffrey Martin talks about this too. Like some people, they take that training that he has. I don't know if it's true or not, but it, to me, it makes sense that he says, you know, some people, they get so into this nowness stuff that they, next thing you know, they've lost their job and they're sleeping under the bridge because they're, they're, they've lost their anchor right so i i have to watch that and i'm so glad that i have i have a business because um it keeps me on the straight and narrow i've got people that you know uh, want to hear what i have to say about memory and and, and I, I i use that as the anchor and then just try to do the best that i can in that but there is there is a kind of um you know dark night of the soul that always persists if if the conclusions of these philosophies and the actual presentation of the meditative state itself is that this is it, then there is no meaning. And you know, even the production of meaning itself is utterly meaningless. 
<laughs> except for the joy that one that I laugh at it because that that's not meaning that's actual joy at the realization that it is utterly meaningless and the conviction that that is so and so if you're going to enjoy something now's the time to enjoy it because there ain't no other time coming or at least there's no guarantee that there is one so i find that that raises the bar on my responsibility to like who i say these things to how i say it because i am that kid who was abused horribly in church by people who were so convinced of the truth of eternal hell and suffering that i you know we're here i think people who are listening to this are probably pretty switched on to these topics so you know maybe put a, a warning at the beginning or something but you know um i i feel if I have one concern, it's it's not a concern for myself, but it's like, what might I say that for a person who's not ready for the, that conclusion, which could be wrong, you know, that that's not necessarily going to be a good thing. And so there's, well, it's, it's Spider-Man 101 with great power comes great responsibility. I'm just not sure that this is necessarily a power. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a gift like anything else, but um, yeah, you gotta, you gotta treat gifts with responsibility too. So yeah my responsibility has gone up that's how life has changed it's 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 a it's a kind of a requirement to 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 take better care than ever before interesting yeah you know you're a memory expert as well as having this deep meditation practice of mm. uh and it, very interesting meditation practice i think you know memorizing sanskrit and in fact i should say that you have live streamed the Ribu Gita, for instance, the, the verses you memorize from there, and people can can look on YouTube, and I'll include some links in the show notes, and see uh, Anthony demonstrating his practice, actually. Uh, very, very fascinating. There, there are certain things that one you do with your hands and so on, very amazing. If we could a little bit draw from both camps here, your, your spiritual uh, endeavors, as well as your memory expertise, you, you know, you've, you've talked a lot about, even today, about how recounting stories can change one's memory. And, you know, of course, this uh, podcast is largely about people recounting stories <laughs> of their lives and uh, their meditation uh, experiences and et cetera, et cetera, and the implications they've drawn from those. And I'm wondering if you could say a bit more about this point. There are, of course, some um, views that says, well, one should not talk about one's spiritual experiences, except with a very limited a group of people, perhaps one's guru or uh, something along those lines. And there are other trends, you could you could say, where talking about one's spiritual experience is almost part of the marketing. It's part of the branding. Mm. It's almost like a Christian, uh, to use that context, testimony, where one declares as in a form of performance of identity, it seems, uh, yes. um, one's conversion experience. I think of the Neo-Vita movement, where describing one's awakening, often quite formulaic in a way, is a crucial part of the performance of the Neo-Advaita uh, teacher or, or speaker on that circuit. So I'm curious uh, if you have any thoughts about that, uh, specifically regarding, say, spiritual experiences and so on, and recounting them. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting. I think the the core of it, I mean, I don't think of what I'm experiencing as spiritual. If anything, it's it's the neutralization of the very notion that there could be such a thing as the spirit uh, or a spirit. I mean, maybe we could talk in a Hegelian sense of various spirits of different societies who come together and so forth. But I think when we look at these groups, what we're or these trends and so forth, what we're really talking about is 
evidence for the absence of free will, right? And so whatever evolves through human behavior in a group setting or whatever, how it evolves is conditioned by the form and the structure at the same time. So what you're seeing is people moving through ascension models, essentially, that have been set up either through thousands of years or even just five weeks ago, um, like cults spring up very quickly. Now, I wouldn't want to call Neo um, Advaita or whatever um, a cult necessarily, but there's, you know, there's stories, let's say, out there of <laughs> just how quickly that that kind of thing can happen. And I don't think that has anything to do with Advaita Vedanta, as I understand it. The, the Advaita Vedanta that I understand dispels itself very quickly. Like there, there, there can't be a hierarchy. There can't be if there, if there if you're the self, then there is no self. It, it, it establishes this very, very, very quickly in the hardcore orthodox stuff, um, and that can lead you to a very dark night of the soul. Because then you know, wait a second, I, I don't know, I got nobody to talk to, right? Which is not true, but those people are just appearing in you. So I don't know the answer at the end of the day, but I would look at it very analytically in terms of. Well, if there are brains and those brains are interacting with other brains, then there's going to be conditioning. And that conditioning is then going to be behaviors are going to emerge that are going to be filtered through structural containers. And that's why you would get, oh, well, we, we frown upon anybody talking about their story here because that just doesn't work in this set of containers. Or here, we need that because that's the thing that attracts more people who are of the kind who like to... Um, uh, you know, set forth the sales of, of all their psychological laundry. And uh, yeah, I mean, different strokes for different folks, but uh, I don't, I don't, I don't see that as uh, it is a memory issue, but I, I, I see that as more a, a, a topic for seeing how humans don't have the, the will or the identity that they think they do, but rather are the productions of their context. So if content is king, Context is God, and that's that's kind of the governing way of, of looking at that that I would use, right or wrong. That's how I would approach it. The narrative drift in retelling one story over a period of time uh, is sometimes, it seems, unconscious uh, mm -hmm. to the narrator. And uh, one is often surprised at the difference in one's narrative from how you now remember it after many tellings to how you initially presented the story. And yeah. that's why we have things like, how would I have said that at the time? Or, or you know, what would I have said at the time? We recognize that, um, yeah. that there's a, a drift there that occurs for better or for worse. What do you, th what implications do you think, uh, given that you've talked about abiding in, in, in these sorts of views as a movement of certain information into procedural memory? Um, what do you what do you think about the implications of narrative drift um, in in this uh, particular area? Well, I think it's a wonderful opportunity for people to understand more about memory if they're if they're interested in it and to create analogies of how memory actually works. Uh, because you know, if we talk just a, briefly about the actual science of memory, one of the great models that um, you can think about all of this is that. When, you, when an event or something happens to you that you want to remember, your brain just splatters it all over the place. It goes into cells. And so from what we understand, 
memory is chemically encoded, positive, negative ions, et cetera, and then just all over the place. And so our memory of this conversation, if we want to have one later and say, hey, the last time we chatted or whatever, you said X, what's happening in the brain is it's trying to get all those things to come back into one place as if it was a family coming for Thanksgiving dinner, right? So some family uncle lives in Chicago, one lives in Seattle, uh, a brother lives in Montreal or whatever, and they've all got to come to your wonderful place there where you have your guitar and your, your stove um, and your books, you know? And as they take that journey, they're going to age. They're going to uh, have experiences on the way and the actual chemical structure changes. So it becomes a different thing. And then when it has that Thanksgiving dinner, it's then going to go back, but it doesn't necessarily go back to the same place. And in the same way that that conversation that you have there will change you. And even the glass of wine that you have, or, uh, you know, the indigestion from whatever changes you like, you don't know, not only do you not necessarily make it back to the same place, you almost most likely don't, and you will not be the same thing when you get there. So that's why this, these drift narrative drift, as you're calling it happens, it's a chemical change, uh, your memories are chemicals. Uh, as far as, or electricity, electricity anyway, that is in some sort of chemical bath. So that's part of it. And so if you, if you want to control the implication to any extent that one could, knowing that uh, is quite instructive because then you can try to minimize the change. And you can think like, what things could I do that would help me have more accurate memories independent of how my brain is going to change it for me? So there's journaling. Um, there's different kinds of journaling that you could think of. There's, uh, I mean, as, as critical as one wants to be of Instagram and all that sort of stuff. I mean, there's also some real hard coding accuracy that goes on there. I mean, it, it would shape your perception, but nonetheless, a photograph is, is going to be relatively accurate to the frame that it casts on the world. So in some sense, our technology is actually improving our uh, ability to, 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 to see a thing, so to speak, as it was with, um, with some verisimilitude. Uh, and then you have things like what we've been talking about. Like, imagine you, you have a meditation practice where it's just uh, breathing or whatever, and then you can tell lies to yourself. Um, yeah, I really focused on my breath for five minutes or so. But imagine a memory practice or a meditation practice where you either accurately recited 100 verses of Sanskrit or you didn't. Well, your accuracy for what you actually did or your truth to what you actually did is going to be a very different proposition. And now, then you're controlling you know, yourself in a different way that maybe gets you better results. So I think those are implications that can come. And it would be the same thing. If you, if you become very, very disciplined to journaling every day in a particular way, then what's, and it's going to be much more crystallized knowledge. And I don't necessarily mean in, in like, a scientific sense of crystal, uh, no, uh, but you know, uh, it's gonna, it's just gonna have this deeper connectivity and coherence. So, if you want implications, then I think you can create them, or you have to pay the price of just having just looseness um, and and unstructured fitness. Although that said, there are people who do have superior autobiographical memory or some sort of uh, advantage in autobiographical memory. They tend from what I've read in the research, they tend to have some sort of OCD level um, self uh, 
uh, well, they, they, they meditate upon themselves, let's say. <laughs> and uh, that's why they can be really, really good at saying, no, this is exactly the way that it happened. Um, but they can also be also incredibly wrong um, and, 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 a, and a pain to be around because they remember exactly what was said <laughs> or they think they did. Um, but yeah, the, there's many, many implications. I would, I would rather people choose on the implications or, or reflect on the implications they want to have and then build a, a system for themselves so that they actually get to enjoy the greater fruits of what memory can be. Well, I, that's, that's so fascinating, Anthony. And uh, the idea that uh, a feat of memory such as uh, memorizing the Sanskrit text, regardless of its other effects, just the accountability of did you get it right or not, and, and the testability of that, which is mm. lacking, as you say, in many other meditation methods. It's, it's very hard to see. I've often thought that actually uh, meditation teachers, they're sitting up at the front of the room. You have no idea what's going on in there. <laughs> you, assume <laughs> that, you assume that they're doing the thing that they're telling you to do, but who knows what they're doing? And maybe yeah, you know, yeah. it, it is hard to say. And um, it's, uh, that's, very, that's a very interesting effect. Okay, perhaps finally, this has been a very, uh, totally fascinating conversation. And I'm curious, you know, you're a memory expert and also a very profound meditator. I'm curious, what is your daily routine? You've mentioned journaling, you've mentioned some other things. It seems that you have um, really looked into optimizing of the mind and optimizing of uh, cognitive ability and so on. So I'm curious if you have specific routines uh, in your day-to-day -day life uh, that are relevant here to our discussion. Yeah, I do. I, I try to make every day as much the same as possible without deviation from form, without, you know, without turning it into a nest that I'm, I'm somehow, you know, beholden to and can't live without. So case in point, we just moved recently. And my preference to have days be more or less the same exactly was overthrown. And we're still not totally settled. Um, but generally, I like I like a pretty standard pattern that that is reliable and repeats. And that is, you know, I don't require sleep to be anything other than it is, but I, I try to make sure that I'm in the bed for eight hours at least, uh, whether I'm asleep or not. And then I like to, before any device goes on or any sort of business thing or whatever happens to run through the Sanskrit that I've memorized as a meditation and maybe add a bit more. I don't add more every single day, maybe once a week, twice a week or whatever, or else I'll go through these, these sprints. And then the next thing, you know, I've added like five or six verses or whatever. Um, but I like to take time and also after they're memorized, really reflect on them. Uh, so that happens usually, you know, morning wise. And uh, I try to write 2000 words a day and I'm fairly successful in, in well exceeding that. Um, but it's just a pattern more than a, more than a routine. And then I like to spend lots of time walking and uh, with my wife and just doing things like this. Uh, try to have as many conversations with as many people as possible uh, frequently, because that's good for the brain. And I, as, may, as, as some people know, if they've read my book or follow my work, I follow a very strict diet. And sometimes I challenge that diet by doing experiments. Uh, I mentioned my potassium crashing recently, and that was because I was doing an experiment and I, I uh, wasn't aware that you could have such an adverse reaction to licorice, but uh, apparently licorice supplements, you got to really study those uh, because <laughs> you can do yourself in apparently. Um, but in any case, yeah, th those are, those are basically my patterns. And then I'll, I'll not always, but often I uh, will redo my meditation through the Sanskrit uh, as I go to sleep or at the end of the day. 
And then I also just try to meditate as such uh, in the sense that I catch myself, you know, noticing the world and then just, wow, this works. I, I am a more present and more aware. And, uh, and then there's just other things like working on where one wants to live. So us being able to move was a very long project. It took a long time to be able to do it, but uh, an area where we see beautiful mountains, the ocean is five minutes away and I uh, go and I'm not a Qigong student, but I like wave my arms around in ways that I saw on YouTube videos with the ocean in front of me. And it's just the most amazing thing. And I uh, try to get that movement in and there's a gym, outdoor gym, do the gym stuff. And uh, I just generally try to, to see how every day could be the most amazing day. Uh, because, you know, I have this little thing here. It's my memento more that came from a friend of mine, which you can't probably see it, but that's Mr. Death. And Mr. Death says, catch you later, which is the most true thing that I ever have known. And in a meditation I learned one time, uh, Michael Roach taught it. Uh, he, he's, a, he's an interesting dude. Um, he talks about, uh, there's a couple parts to it. And he talks about how they use the temple to, to help memorize certain parts of uh, this meditation. And the second, no, it's the third part of the meditation. Um, you imagine a little black dog nipping at your heels and that dog is death and uh so i just try to reflect on i mean i don't try to but i actually make myself because i see mr death telling me he'll catch me later <laughs> every day and that that helps one reflect on that um so that i do as well and, and again i'd say these are more patterns than rituals and then read i try to read like i read like crazy i i i it's the, it's the funniest thing. My wife laughs at me all the time. You're the only guy with a book or whatever. And then we, we see somebody with a book. Like, There's finally one other human with a book. But uh, I read on the bus. I read while I'm walking. She puts her finger through my belt loop so that I can read while I'm walking. And I just, just constantly reading and reading and reading. And uh, as much as I can, I like to read. I like to be with other writers in my head and, um, and, and just hang out with words. And I think that that's probably part of my fascination with Sanskrit because it is one pattern neutralizing another. And that's all words are. Words are patterns and they're strung together with other patterns. And the pattern is just, it, it, it's that bizarre human relationship or technology that we created so that we could have a relationship with other, with consciousness over there, uh, you know? And it's just the most beautiful thing. So I spend as much time with that as I can. And I'm so glad I found the way to make the thoughts not hurt anymore because man, they sure put me through the ringer for a long time. Fascinating. Anthony Mativier, thank you very much. Thanks, Steve. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.